to the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you the recording of our 2016 Aid Budget Breakfast event. Morning, everyone. Uh, it's a little bit 10 past nine now, so we'll get started. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we're meeting and uh, to pay my respects to the elders of Ngunnawal Nation, past and present, and extend that respect to any other Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples who may be joining us. Uh, My name is Camilla Burcott. I'm a research officer here at the Development Policy Centre. It's my pleasure to chair today's Aid Budget Breakfast. Uh, Thank you all for joining us this morning, both everyone who's come here to the ANU um, and also everyone who's joining us via live stream. Uh, I imagine a lot of you, like us, were up late last night, um, but this... This is our fourth annual Aid Budget Breakfast. It's always a very popular event, um, and it's a great opportunity to talk about Australian aid, so we're glad you can make it. Uh, Today we'll be hearing from three presenters, who will each speak for about 15 minutes. Uh, We have Dr. Anthony Swan, who's a research fellow at Dev Policy, Uh, Professor Stephen House, our director, and Ms. Jackie DeLacy, who's the general manager for Global Strategy at AppJTA. After each of our speakers have spoken, we'll um, take a few minutes for any questions, clarifications, um, and then after all three, three speakers have finished, uh, we'll open up for general discussion, um, questions from the floor, wrap up about 10.30. Um, just before we begin, I'd like to encourage anyone who's inclined to live tweet using the hashtag AidBudget2016. Um, so I think we'll kick off. Um, Dr. Anthony Swan is a research fellow at the Development Policy Center, and he will be providing us with a macroeconomic assessment of the federal budget to set the context for our next discussion about the aid budget. shows the underlying cash balance. And I've deliberately not shown the government's uh, budget projections, because I want to focus not on where we, they think we're going to end up, but what we actually are and how it's changed over time. So as you can see, uh, as of the end of this financial year, the expectation is that the budget deficit will be um, $40 billion. Uh, over the last three years, not much has changed. So why is this? Well, clearly government spending is higher than revenue, and this chart shows both as a share of GDP. Once again, I'm just showing uh, the actual numbers, and you can see that um, that over recent years, since the GFC, spending has been very high, and that hasn't changed. Uh, revenue um, 
has fallen uh, over the last um, quite a few years, but is slowly increasing, but not very fast. So I want to zoom into this recent period to see what efforts the government has been making to close this gap. And then look at different um, budget projections um, over the years. So let's start with uh, the last Labor government budget in 2013. The dotted line, the dotted line shows um, spending projections at that time, and the dashed line shows um, revenue projections at that time. And you can see that the government was forecasting projecting strong uh, cuts to spending, um, large increases in revenue to bring the, the budget back to balance and everything looks good. But clearly both of those um, both of those failed. They made little debt <coughs> into the of the public. Moving ahead to the first Abbott um, budget in 2014, government spending initially spiked, as they, as they projected, um, and was later projected to fall, which didn't happen. Once again, there were strong um, uh, expectations that revenue will be up, which it didn't. Looking to last year's budget, and that's the orange dotted line for spending. You can see that the government essentially gave up on having banks. And really, it relied upon strong revenue um, growth expectations to support the budget. So let's look at, at the current <coughs> budget. Once again, the government has given up on that spending. It's essentially around that 26% of GDP mark, and it's slightly falling towards uh, 29%. And once again, there are strong expectations that revenue will come in and save the day. Just like it has in both the last three or four years, which have never actually eventuated. So, this brings us back to Underlying cash balance again, and some of the projections. And as you can see, <laughs> in this year's budget compared to previous years, it's a similar story. But the question is, can we believe it? Do we believe these projections? Of course, if you're running a budget deficit, okay, we need to fund that through um, increasing government debt. So you can see when the coalition, current government, came into power around 2013, uh, net debt as a share of GDP was around 10%, and has only headed north since then. And you can see how, over the different various projections, um, how uh, as those projections really haven't um, been realised that the debt column has gotten worse despite all this talking about budget repair. So why does this matter? What is it, why should you care about this? Okay, well, 
at least from my perspective, the key to the growing aid, real aid budget is a healthy government fiscal position. So why, why isn't our fiscal position so I've just got a, a few thoughts on this. Um, starting with that revenue-raising measures, effective revenue-raising measures, really aren't being implemented. Why? Well, there hasn't been enough tax reform. There's been talk, but not much else. And where there have been new tax, tax measures implemented, raising revenue, that have been offset by tax cuts elsewhere. So we've got examples of superannuation concessions, a great way to raise revenue, but the government's doing a bit of a rather good exercise and reducing or increasing concessions elsewhere. There are income tax cuts, I'll talk a bit more about those later, uh, and therefore the relatively wealthy, and of course there are unemployment tax cuts as well. And there's been an over-reliance on relatively small taxes, um, such as tobacco excise, rather than deeper reform that's going to, to really make a difference. Two, Okay, low tax revenue, there's, there is low tax revenue due to slow wages growth. In order for wages growth to increase, raise taxes, and need productivity growth. And labor productivity growth, and this just isn't happening. Also, we have a low inflationary and now deflationary environment, which means that. Um, Income, individual incomes are not being pushed up, people aren't being pushed up into higher <coughs> tax brackets, and so we're not raising more revenue due to those inflation effects. Instead, the government is trying to deal with this problem, which really isn't a big issue at the moment, by, by trying to um, bring in uh, tax cuts to reduce revenue cream, which is not an issue. Also, we've got a lower expecting working age population. Okay? We have fewer people working, um, there's less, less income, and there's less taxes being paid. What is the reason for this change in expectation? Well, the government is expecting 150,000 fewer people by 2019 as a direct result of lower net migration, and this is a policy decision. Three, there's a lack of control on spending. And cuts to spending, as we all know about in the aid sector, are being offset by spending on new initiatives. On new initiatives. Of course, there's been often the uh, well known uh, failure to negotiate changes in the Senate. There's also an increased interest burden from our higher debt levels. And also, if you're going to consistently get revenue projections wrong, clearly that's going to have an impact on how the strategy is spending. You think you've got a lot more money, but really you don't. And so that's certainly would have contributed to the spending pattern. And lastly, there's a continued expectation that the economy will pick up by itself. Well, the current stagnant growth that we're experiencing now 
Many days and many months. You look at Japan and other countries like that, they've been dealing with this problem for a long time. And perhaps it's something that we need to consider. Okay, so we're interested in improving our the government's fiscal position. Why? Because we know that there, is big, there are huge pressures on the government to reduce spending and there is a big squeeze on the aid program. Okay, well, this is set to worsen over time. Okay, because there are big pressures, particularly in defence and in health sectors, and in the population, um, and so forth. So really, I just want to show you here a chart looking at the share of total government expenditure across different sectors over various points in time. So I just wanted to sort of illustrate some of the changes over a broader period of time. And starting with around 2006-07, before the GFC, um, we had ODA at 1.1%, as you all know, um, looking at 12-13, which is the peak of the A boom, and the share of ODA went up to 1.3%. Currently, of this financial year, it's now around 1%. But looking ahead to 2025, 2026, what can we expect? Well, we don't know for sure, but if we grow ODA at CPI and total expenditure um, at, at yeah, normal growth rates of about 5%, we can expect ODA to fall to about 0.8%. Of the total budget. How does that compare to other sectors? Well, in defence, defence is roughly around 7% of total government spending. Um, a few years ago that fell down 6%, currently it's around 7.7%. But the government is committed to spending 2% GDP on defence going forward. So in around 10 years' time, that's increasing to 1.4%. Okay? As defence expands its share of the budget, we need to be cuts. We need to be squeezed elsewhere in the budget. Where that will be, we're not sure, but certainly that's going to put pressure on ODA. Education, well, I don't really have numbers going 10 years forward, but that's looking like it's increasing. And health is definitely going to increase. Okay, so as the population ages, there are huge pressures on health spending. Um, the number for 25-26 is based on um, numbers coming out of the latest intergenerational report. So essentially what I'm saying is that as other sectors expand, there's going to be a further squeeze on ODA over the long run. So it's, from an aid budget perspective, it's important for the government to strengthen its fiscal position now before this further squeeze of this. Thanks very much. Are there any questions for Tony? Um, I 
Sherrick from Global Coffee Project Global Citizen. Um, I'm wondering, you mentioned Japan and other countries. To what extent is this sort of um, same fiscal position occurring in other countries, particularly those which have, at least until now, have fairly robust, um, strong aid programs? So, like the UK, I guess a bunch of European countries. Is this same issue occurring when we've got you know, consistently high spending, uh, collapsing revenue streams, low growth? Um, just wondering if you could touch on that. Do you want me to answer that now? Um, or take another try? Other, other questions? Up, up the back. I think my question follows on from this question, which is to say, your, your hypothesis is that we need a stronger fiscal position to have a stronger, larger, stronger aid budget. Is that, is that a phenomenon unique to Australia? Um, or, or, you know, or is that, a, or is, is that something we can say is universal? Because it seems like that's what we need to have here in order to have a strong aid budget. But is that, is that something globally that, that is a phenomenon? Or is it just something unique about our obsession with budget deficits? Okay, okay. all right. Uh, thanks, Michael, for your question. Um, yeah, look. We're in an environment where, well, the, la the latest uh, CPI numbers, the March quarter CPI fell by 0.2 or something percent. Right. So, uh, over the years, the government has made huge reforms in trying to control inflation. Um, that's the, the Reserve Bank, you know, has a mandate to to manage um, the economy as it can in order to do that. And it has done a very good job, um, and that's what they're supposed to do. Um, but really, that inflation problem has been hit over the head, um, and you know, we're, we've got the lowest cash rate, uh, I can't even remember when it was, it was lower. So um, really, the government is, is is not having much impact on, on this low inflation environment. And yes, many other countries are facing the same problem. When you look at uh, interest rates in the States and, and in Japan, they've been dealing with a deflationary environment for a long, a long time. So yeah, look, um, this, is, this is happening around the world. And I guess for Australia, it's something that we, we shouldn't presume that we are just going to automatically get out of it. Um, and we need to start thinking about what that means over a longer period of time. Um, you know, and, and when it comes to uh, <coughs> handing back money to, to taxpayers through tax cuts, as we have done for a long period of time, well, you know, that's not something that is, is as necessary as before when we're not having as anywhere near as much so the, the idea of, of having, you know, albeit small, uh, tax cut in this budget to deal with that bracket creep problem is, is, is uh, I guess, unexpected. Um, other countries, yes, look, 
know, I think it's, it'd be fair to say that Australia does have an obsession with uh, you know, the idea of budget deficit <coughs> and being in surplus. Something that um, in many other countries they just don't have the voting public, the voters don't have that expectation. And look, that, that has served us well uh, to a degree. You know, our level of debt is much, much lower compared to other countries. Um, and if it was worse, perhaps the aid program would be smaller than it currently is. So it's hard, it's hard to know, you know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Um, but I think to answer your question, are other countries as concerned or do they require, um, you know, to be in a great fiscal position before they start spending aid? Well, that's, that's clearly not the case. Any other burning questions for Tony? Um, yeah. <coughs> Hi, my name is Trish Carr. Sorry for being a bit late school I'm one of the Greens candidates and I wanted to raise the issue of, um, I, I guess what I see as a mismatch between um, with a very generous community, you know, giving and, and government um, expenditure in this area. And maybe you've got a comment on that expand? Or is it just there isn't the value? Uh, yeah. Um, well, we can measure generosity um, based on the share of ODA to national government. Okay, so it's not about revenue because we're, we control it for that. And, and Stephen and Jackie will probably talk about this a bit later on. Um, but for now, um, the share of, of ODA to, to national income is, is, is falling dramatically to um, very, very low levels. So um, it's clear that we're not being generous, and, and I don't want to sort of cut their lunch, but it's, it's not a bad Um, we'll move on now to the next presentation. If you have more questions, of course, we'll have time again. Um, so our next presenter is Professor Stephen Howes, um, who, as I've said, is the director of the centre, and he'll be speaking about uh, this year's aid budget, volume, allocations, trends. Take it away, Stephen. Great. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. And uh, let me also thank you all for coming and also thank uh, some of the other colleagues who've worked, uh, you know, who worked uh, to get this um, analysis to you. Uh, Matt Dornan's put up a blog with a lot of detail around the country allocations. Uh, Robin Davies in Geneva uh, does all our fact-checking. And uh, I just want to thank Jackie for coming back. She's back by popular demand from last year. Uh, so Tony set the context, and I'm going to kind of go over the aid um, the, the aid part of the budget. Um, so, let me, let me start. Um, and yeah, Oops. as usual, start with aid quantities and then go on to a uh, word about quality. Uh, so, I think uh, we can't uh, hide the uh, fact that uh, it may not have got a lot of attention. It might seem like a fairly uh, modest cut compared to last year, but this year's budget, uh, yesterday's budget, uh, has brought about one of the largest cuts to aid ever. 
Uh, so this graph shows all the changes in aid since the beginning, adjusted for inflation. And um, yeah, so you see the, the, and the, the red ones are the biggest, I think they're the biggest five. And of course, the biggest was the one last year, just over a billion if you also adjust for inflation. But uh, the one this year, or this sort of next year, is uh, I think the fourth biggest cut ever. And uh, it's 220 with, uh, without inflation and uh, goes up to uh, almost 300 once you account for inflation. Uh, so it's a very big cut. It's only happened before um, in, uh, in mid-'80s under Hawke and uh, then, uh, one, anyway, a couple of other times. But it's a, it's a big cut. And the other thing you can see, you know, apart from the two big red lines, those two blue lines next to it. So this is the, fourth, the first time aid's been cut four times in a row. I mean, that's a kind of sad, sad fact uh, about this run of uh, cuts that we've seen under the coalition government. And uh, this just shows you the numbers on those cuts. And if you put them all together, we see 30% less aid now than when the coalition took over. So 2012-13 was the last uh, Labor aid budget. And uh, we've had nominal restraint, then these big nominal cuts. Combine that with inflation, and you get the 30% aid cut. And uh, as Tony mentioned, this has pushed our generosity to uh, a record low. Uh, in fact, it is the record low. We were, we're now here. So that is uh, the lowest ever. I think it's about 0.23. And let me just use this opportunity to advertise our aid tracker. So we've tried to put these sort of uh, basic uh, facts about aid into a kind of very user-friendly form which is the aid tracker, and it's already updated. So it's already updated for the budget. And uh, you can see, uh, yeah, here it is. Right? This is that. Uh, uh, so, yeah, we're now at um, 0.23. Uh, we will be at 0.23 next year, which is the lowest we've ever been. So if you're interested in these graphs, uh, just go to Dev Policy Aid Tracker. Um, Yeah, and uh, we've already had some questions, what are other countries doing? And while other countries are facing fiscal pressure, most of them aren't responding it, to it in the same way as Australia. They're not picking on aid. So in fact, uh, you know, to probably most people's surprise, uh, globally, aid continues to rise. And I think a lot of people thought, you know, maybe aid was coming to an end, the global financial crisis would precipitate that end, and we'd see some big cuts in aid. But uh, they just, uh, OECD just released the 2015 figures, and uh, you can see it's almost touching 150 billion. It's never been, never been higher. Uh, so there are very few countries that, uh, like Australia, are really uh, slashing aid. And uh, that gives rise to this phenomenon. Oh, sorry, I've gone backwards. Yeah. Uh, you know, I always remember that when I worked in AusAid, you know, we seemed to track the uh, A to GNI average. We didn't want to get below that average. That was seen as poor form. And so we're the uh, red line. And you see the red line is always above the blue line, except for this one year. That was a spike in debt relief. You know, we didn't have so much debt relief, I think, for Iraq. So we fell below that year. But you can see otherwise, right, that um, red line, it's always been, you know, add or equal to the blue line. But uh, now we're going below, and that line will continue to fall. Right? That's going to go down to 0.23, whereas this seems fairly flat, right, the blue line. So... Um, we are below the average generosity uh, level. You know, we like to think of ourselves as a generous nation, but uh, we're not. We're not from this um, 
met metric, which I think is a pretty good metric of a nation's generosity. Uh, we, we can no longer think of ourselves as a generous nation. Uh, just to um, I think underline what uh, Tony was saying, um, you know, this cut is not part of an uh, austerity package, you know, part of a response to a budget emergency, you know, where everything's being cut across the board. You know, somehow aid is being picked on. <laughs> uh, there's no doubt about that. This is the 30% of aid cut I talked about, right? But over the same period, total expenditure has gone up by 10%. And um, by 2019-20, we're not going to see any more cuts. I'll come to that in a minute. Uh, but total, we're not going to see growth either. So total expenditure can grow by 16%. So it's really a matter of uh, priorities. Uh, Tony showed that growth in defence, uh, in health and education. Um, so aid's been pushed down the priority list. Um, and, and in a context where you, have, you don't have a lot of revenue, you have these other areas of expenditure that are seen as uh, more, uh, more important, um, aid gets cut. And um, you know, aid's gone down the priority list. So this is that aid to expenditure ratio Tony also talked about. And yeah, this is also, I think we're now at a record, we're, we're just above 0.8, uh, so less than 1% of federal spending goes on aid, and we're going we're gonna to be heading for just uh, 8 cents in the dollar. Um, <clears throat> so just to, um, that's the bad news, <laughs> it's a pretty gloomy picture, it's not dissimilar to uh, the last few budgets in terms of overall trends. I guess the silver lining on the budget is uh, maybe it's the last of the big cuts. So this just takes us through the last few budgets while we've been having these aid breakfasts. This was the last Labor budget, you know, showed a, four, a trajectory that went up. And uh, then, uh, oh, sorry, that was 2011-12. This is the last Labor one. Yeah, it went up, but not, you know, not as much. Labor tended to also. They didn't cut aid in absolute terms. They increased it, but always at a, never as much as they promised to. Uh, then uh, the coalition took over, uh, and oh no, this is also later. Here's the coalition. Yeah, first they said they're going to keep aid flat, but then they said no, actually we're going to start, we're going to cut aid. And um, this is the 2015-16 budget. I guess the, the silver lining is that this is actually the same, right? The orange and the blue are the same. So there were no new cuts in this budget. That's the first time, you know, in a long time, in some five years, there were no further cuts. There were no, I guess, negative surprises. Uh, in this budget. So maybe uh, we've reached the sort of the end of the cutting period. And uh, you can see there's a, what's promised for the future is a uh, you know, very modest increase uh, in aid just to keep it up with, uh, with CPI, so to avoid further, further real cuts. And uh, this just goes back to the point I made last year. You know, you know we have now scaled down. So we had a very period of very slow increase over many decades. We had this incredible increase that couldn't be sustained, and then we had a, you know, a, a rapid drop. And if we kept going at that earlier rate of increase, we'd be pretty much where we are today. So um, we've gone back to the way we were. Uh, and uh, the hope is, you know, we're not going to go down this way. We're uh, perhaps, we have a, an aid budget that is appropriately sized for a less generous nation. Uh, that's on the uh, quantities in terms of uh, composition and quality. Well, where did they cut uh, the, the aid? Um, you know, when you look at it, it's a, it seems a bit odd at first because everything seems to be the same. And country allocations and a lot of other allocations like aid for NGOs, um, volunteers, it's all sort of matches perfectly with their, uh, 
budget for last year, uh, with the one exception of uh, Fiji, which was, uh, has a big increase. Um, Indonesia shows a decrease, but when you look at it, that seems to be more of an accounting move. They've taken some uh, health expenditures for Indonesia out into the health uh, program. Um, so part of it is, is exactly this, right? If you keep everyone constant in nominal terms, you're giving them a real cut, right? And so they've given the, all the programs a real cut uh, across the board. Uh, but then uh, that doesn't get you to a 5% nominal cut, so they've, uh, that has a burden has been borne by the global programs. Right? Global programs are down by 12%. And uh, what we were told is that that's, they're not um, permanent cuts. It's, it's a reprofiling. It's a deferring of commitments. So push out commitment, honour the commitments, but push them out to later years and use up the room that you'll get from later years because of that indexation to inflation. Right? That will free up space to uh, honour those commitments. Uh, effectively, you know, you're then taking from the future growth in country allocations. So country allocations will continue to stagnate right, to the extent that that money is needed to meet our, our global commitments. Uh, so no real changes in regional allocation. Those big changes, the massive cuts to Africa and to Asia, uh, that happened last year, and uh, now we're in a period of um, stability for regional allocations. Yeah, this is just a snarky remark about performance that was meant to matter a lot for allocations, perhaps not mattering matter as much as it should, but then perhaps that's not a bad thing. Perhaps predictability is, going to, is, a, is a good thing. I think what's interesting, what we can do for the first time now, is look at how the sectoral allocations uh, have changed. Uh, there was more information released this time, and there's also been some information released about last year's budget. I started writing about this uh, in a blog I put out yesterday, and I've extended that. Um, in the blog I put out this morning. So this is the uh, new analysis. It's got two more years. So it's got this year and it's got 2013-14. Uh, so it goes back a year and goes forward a year. And uh, it's uh, now it's adjusted for inflation. So they're all in today's prices. And it uses the categories of expenditure that the government uses. Uh, these are their categories. So resilience is uh, humanitarian and environment. Uh, general is a sort of residual, and I, I can't really explain this, so I'm going to try and find out what's behind that. But ignore, putting that aside, what you see are these massive changes, cuts to health. So health starts off at almost 800 million, and now it's down at about 500. So part of this is the, uh, that deferral of uh, commitments you know, to future years, but that can't be all of it, right? It's such a huge uh, cut in health. And we also see this big cut in education, uh, education, you know, at some point, well, it was certainly the biggest sector and, uh, you know, it was sometimes referred to as a flagship sector. Uh, it's lost that, uh, that position, that preeminence, uh, because of these uh, massive cuts. And uh, the, the biggest uh, sector now is governance. Um, so that's a bit of a surprise. Uh, I'll come back to it. Uh, agriculture and infrastructure, now these are the two private sector sort of areas, aid for trade areas. And given, you know, the government's made a very strong pitch for that, it's not surprising to see those have been protected. You know, maybe you can't grow them in a budget environment where you're cutting, but you can see why they protected. <coughs> uh, you know, they, they protected a little bit humanitarian, but if you think, well, we're in a humanitarian crisis worldwide, uh, here you're cutting the humanitarian budget, and it falls further this year, despite the announcement of a new package for Syria and the region. Uh, so no real protection for uh, humanitarian. 
Um, yeah, so I come back to governance. It's a bit of a surprise. You know, the government didn't really, in its policy documents, hasn't really stressed the import. It stressed the importance of governance, but nothing like the private sector. Right? It hasn't been the sort of brand for this government. So you can see why health and education would fall and why agriculture infrastructure wouldn't, but governance uh, being protected so much and um, you know, being the, becoming the largest sector, which of course it was under Downer, uh, perhaps a bit of a surprise. I think you know, we have to work out why. Uh, these are rough figures, they're, they're estimates. We treat them with caution. Um, we know the Pacific's been protected and Pacific spends a lot on governance. Uh, that must be, must be part of the reason. There has been some of the rhetoric away from sort of moving away from service delivery, and perhaps that's uh, you know, why health and education have been picked on rather than governance. You know, we're trying to build capacity. Um, of course, it's, people will disagree as to which are the more important. Um, <clears throat> personally, I'm, I think if you're cutting the budget by 30%, uh, there, there would be room to cut in governance. And I'm surprised it hasn't been cut. Uh, given the massive health challenges that we're facing, uh, just think of the multi-drug resistance uh, th threat of uh, MDRTB in uh, PNG. Uh, I, I find this uh, surprising and, and not very convincing. Um, on a parochial note, any of my colleagues are here. We do, uh, for the first time, get some information on the cuts to scholarships. And uh, yeah, you know, if you wonder why <coughs> a lot of universities are struggling. Scholarships are down from 4,000 to 3,000. Um, yeah, we always uh, you know, put a graph up on departmental expenses. That's the cost of administering the A program. Uh, for a short period, uh, one year, a cap was imposed on that of 5%, uh, but that cap is gone. And in fact, the, um, uh, the departmental expenses or the ratio of uh, departmental expenses to total aid is... Uh, as high as, as it was under, under Labour, except for one year. So that's an interesting observation. And then finally, I had to uh, mention this. <laughs> if uh, anyone's uh, wondering why I put that graphic in my blog. Yeah, so the blue book is gone. It's been gone for a couple of years, and you know a lot of people complained about that. So the government has uh, now brought back an orange book. Um, which does give some good information about the, uh, about the aid budget and uh, how our money's being spent. So I think that's certainly a uh, positive note uh, on which I'll end. Thank you. Uh, okay, do we have any questions for Stephen after that uh, very illuminating presentation? Just on your assumption that in future years the global funders uh, will get uh, money that comes so quickly out of the four years of uh, country programs, I'm just wondering if that's the reality of how it will work. States do that, the is just going to go to a lower punishment level, potentially global fund later in the year, and guarding one after education as well. Um, have you heard something specifically that they're going to maintain? Right. No, I think that's a really good question. Um, they were very uh, adamant at the budget lockup that uh, all existing commitments would be honoured, 
and that where there was this, what they called this reprofiling, that it was simply a reprofiling, not a reduction in future years. But yeah, that uh, doesn't answer the question that you're posing. Well, what about once you've honoured the, honored the commitment, uh, what, what's going to happen to the next commitment? Um, and uh, are they going to be... Uh, yeah, I think they... So that is a, an open issue. Um, yeah, you'd think in a budget that is uh, now going to be flat in real terms that probably it, it seems the mood is to keep things going, keep current allocations uh, as they've been, rely on historical precedent. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a good... They did, there's certainly no commitment I picked up uh, on, in terms of forward commitments. And I think it's especially an issue for uh, the regional organisations where I said uh, you know, all the country allocations were protected. If you look at the, you know, there's a big Pacific regional and uh, East Asia regional, I think South Asia regional, they all got cut. And again, the point was made that these will be made up in future years. Um, but I think as, uh, as Matt's commented, where you don't have a, necessarily a kind of a, a, a replenishment, a formal multi-year funding agreement, uh, it could be... The more flexibility there is, the harder it will be to monitor uh, this commitment. <clears throat> Margaret uh, Stephen, was there any detail in the A budget summary about the cost of offshore detention centres and how much of that or how much refugee costs in general are being borne by the A program? And um, the second question was is there anything about quality in the document? Um, on offshore processing, I'll just mention that I wanted to mention, you know, in the, this year, 2013-14, there was that 300 million labour commitment for onshore costs of refugees. I've taken that out of this because otherwise it uh, distorts the figures. So just to show that humanitarian falls, even if you take that out. Um, yeah, the government hasn't uh, been including either onshore or offshore processing costs um, and, and uh, isn't, it's not in this budget either. Uh, you know, worldwide, I mean, one reason why, um, you know, the aid, global aid is still rising is that um, because of uh, refugee costs, and you know, under the OECD rules, you're allowed to charge, I think for the first year, the costs of asylum seekers domestically to your aid budget. And uh, countries, many countries do that, and with more asylum seekers, those costs have gone up. Countries are tending to do more. It's still relatively small. It's about $5 billion, I think. Some, it's less than 10. Um, but it perhaps, you know, otherwise aid might be flat rather than, than going up. Um, Australia's not doing that. Um, but at the same time, yeah, there's no suggestion of a cut for PNG um, and there's no suggestion of a cut for Cambodia uh, or Nauru. So I guess, um, you know, we're still seeing aid as a strategic tool to help us, um, you know, to support the uh, offshore arrangements that we want in place, even though it's not directly financing them. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry, quality. Uh, not a lot on quality, I guess transparency. So they um, had the Orange Book. They've, they've recently updated their statistical series for the past, and um, they handed that out, and they, they handed out the uh, aid performance report. So I guess they... DFAT was keen to emphasise that uh, transparency and quality are, are on the agenda, um, even though they're not, I guess they're not prominent in the, um, in the Orange Book itself.
Thanks, David. Jonathan Fry from the Law Institute. Uh, just back to uh, departmental costs. Um, there's still at the level of an underlayer to discuss. Considering um, the scale back scope of the AA of the budget, one would assume that we have more ability and better ability to deliver it effectively. Is that actually the case given the merger of programs and the blended role that a lot of staff are now playing in the DPAT? Mm. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying it's not true. Jonathan left us to go to Lloyd because he couldn't face the prospect of one more all-night budget <laughs> analysis. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it must be difficult. To, it's always difficult. It's always somewhat artificial, right? What you count as a departmental expense. And this big, uh, you know, shift in 2010-11 wasn't a massive uh, hiring spree. You know, a lot of. Um, I think when I worked for Ozad, I was charged to the aid budget, right, rather than to the departmental budget. So. There was a shift in accounting. Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a very slippery measure. Uh, it was a very slippery measure even under Ausaid. It must be much more slippery now under um, an integrated department and how you allocate overheads um, between the different parts of DFAT. I have no idea uh, how, they, how they do that. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just, it's just a bit of fun, I guess, really, that there was this you know, commitment to 5%. Right? And, and, yeah, I mean, to be honest, a lot of the rhetoric, you know, we're going to base, we're going to link aid to performance, uh, we're going to have departmental costs under 5%. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess the point is a lot of that rhetoric uh, has gone, gone by the way, so. Okay, I think we'll move on to the last presentation now. Um, yeah, we'll move on to the last presentation now, and we'll come back and there's some more hands. Um, so, uh, lastly, Jeff DeLacy from FJCA is going to talk a little bit about how this budget relates to broader departmental policy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I was going to say it's a pleasure to be back, but I'm not sure having to pour over further cuts to the aid budget could ever be described as a pleasure. I hope I one day get the opportunity to participate in one of these when we've got a more positive story to tell. Um, but I still think it's in all of our interest to understand how the aid program is being reshaped through the distribution of these cuts. And as Stephen said, it is still a big budget of cuts. Now, of course, this is a budget in terms of its distribution that aims to be as inoffensive as possible. Um, and this makes sense. So there's a lot of predictability and links to last year's budget. And I think that makes sense given the enormous disruption that the big cuts last year uh, posed for the program. It does make our job of finding something interesting and insightful to say a little bit challenging, but let me try. So I think there's a little bit of overlap with what Stephen said. I mean, we all left the budget briefing last night and beavered away on our speeches, so we didn't have a chance to sort of um, check how much overlap there was. So there's some things that we'll talk about that are similar and some that are different. Um, so there are three ways we can look at the aid budget. So first is we can examine the geographic distribution of the program, so what countries and regions are getting more or less. And this was the big story in last year's budget, so I'll have a quick look at that, but Stephen's pretty much covered that. The second lens which I wanted to talk about and Stephen has also covered is the sectoral allocation of aid, and I think this is a story that does deserve much more attention from all of us. 
And we do need to understand what sectors are being prioritised over others and how that relates to the government's policy frameworks. The third lens that I'll look at is partner selection. So how much aid is being spent through NGOs or contractors versus multilaterals, for example? And after quickly reviewing the program through these three lenses, I'll conclude, a bit like I did last year, uh, with some personal reflections on how these allocations relate to the stated policy uh, priorities of the government. And I am going to spend a bit of time relating the decisions back to what we can see in terms of performance data of the aid program. I am really interested in the relationship between uh, the information we've got on the performance of the program and the allocations the government is making in the budget context. Uh, so first of all, a caveat, I have to admit, all of this analysis is my own and I do it at home after I've wrangled the kids to bed, so there's, it's probably riddled with mistake, mistakes and I haven't used constant prices and I haven't necessarily up, updated all of the graphs. Um, so if there are any mistakes, just blame me, but more importantly, maybe correct me and look at the data yourselves. Okay, so let's look at the country and regional flow. So, um, Last year, as you no doubt all remember, we saw that dramatic reshaping of the geographical allocation of Australia's aid program, where Australia largely exited Africa and reduced to a bare minimum its presence in places like South Asia and the Middle East, and saw very large cuts to its programs in Southeast Asia, 40% cuts across the board, with the exception of Cambodia and Timor-Leste, and it protected its programs in the Pacific. And as Stephen said, this year we've seen pretty much that picture maintained, that narrowing uh, focus on the Pacific. The only country to get an increase was Fiji. The only country to get a cut was Indonesia, although maybe it's not a real cut. I'll have to look at it a bit more closely. Um, it, I mean, I think that the cuts last year, those decisions around how the cuts were distributed geographically had the benefit of simplicity and recognised that it's in, a, in Australia's... Um, that it's in our most immediate neighbourhood where Australia's national interest and obligations are strongest. Um, the decision on geographic allocation was also spiced up by the Cambodia uh, anomaly, um, where the links to Australia's border security policy, as Stephen was saying, were very obvious. So you could see that last year national interest really drove the decisions on the allocation of the aid program from a geographic perspective, and those decisions were not related at all to the performance of different country programs or regions, and they weren't related to poverty or need. So this year that story is repeated. Um, I looked up the latest performance data, which I've put up there on the slide, of the different geographic regions, and as you can see... Uh, the Pacific, which is on the far left for you, uh, is the worst performing region. So you've got two green lines. You've got the uh, proportion of programs that are at risk, which are the pale green lines, and you've got the proportion of programs that are on track, which are the dark green lines. And the Pacific has by far the largest proportion of programs at risk as a percentage of its portfolio. So you can see that as the government is focusing more and prioritising the regional, the region of the Pacific, it's, it's also the program that DFAT itself assesses as its most at-risk or worst-performing region. 
Um, now let's look at sector flows. I really want to put up Stephen's new <laughs> chart because he's updated all of these figures um, to take account of this year's flows. Um, uh, but as you saw from Stephen's graph, the, the, the story is the same. We see more cuts in health. We see more cuts in education. We see governance largely consolidated as DFAT's largest sector at just over 800 million. And we see um, infrastructure and agriculture protected as you would expect. And we see another modest, um, re well, another reduction in humanitarian spending. In dollar terms, the figures are even more dramatic, as Stephen pointed out. You know, in health, we're now spending over $300 million less a year than we were two years ago. Is that still on? Yeah. Um, and most of that has been borne by geographic programs, but presumably mostly in the Asia-Pacific. I doubt we can be doing very much on health um, anywhere other than the Pacific these days. Um, we also are spending $400 million a year less on education, um, which includes some reduction in the scholarship program, but it's still a dramatic uh, reduction in the number of programs that are working on in improving education outcomes for kids in the, in the region. I haven't looked at the data in terms of the percentage of money we're now allocating to health and education compared to other donors, but a friend was talking to me just outside and she'd done a quick analysis that said now that we're spending only 13% of our budget on health, that's the lowest in the OECD. I think it'd be good to test that, or one of the lowest, okay. Um, in contrast to these reductions, we can see that governance in particular stands out as a sector that's being maintained. Despite all three sectors, health, education and governance receiving equal weighting in the government's um, uh, stated priorities for the program. And I'm not necessarily saying that one is better than the other. In fact, my company is a big um, governance contractor for DFAT, so I'm not saying that all governance programs are necessarily bad. But what we don't understand is why this big reallocation from health and education to governance is happening, and I think we deserve to understand that, that better. It could be, um, you know, Stephen hypothesised about what some of those reasons might be. It might also be because um, governance is a very sort of broad category and, and DFAT's moving more to these sort of big sectoral facilities and maybe, maybe they're capturing those under the name of governance. Um, it could be that there's more spending on economic governance, which is linked to the aid for trade commitments. But the point is, we don't know. We're not getting enough detail. And I think one of the things we should be asking for is more detail on the, on the split between the um, sectors and what that really means. Uh, certainly, the shifts in the sectoral allocations can't be justified on performance grounds, as DFAT's own performance data places governance, health and education on an equal footing. Interestingly, and I didn't put, put the slide up, but you should go and have a look at the report, the worst performing sector, this is the sector that DFAT staff identify as their worst performing, um, is infrastructure and trade, and that's the, they're the sectors it's proudly trying to expand. So I think more debate, transparency and justification around the sectoral flows is warranted, and I think it's something we should all be watching carefully. The third lens I said we'd look at is partner of choice. So Australia spends its aid money by channeling it in basically four ways. We, they spend it through um, partner government systems, so giving budget support to countries. 
They spend it through NGOs, they spend it through commercial contractors, and they spend it through multilateral organisations. I haven't been able to get good data on the trends of expenditure against all four categories. It might be there, and it may even be an aid tracker. I haven't looked into too much detail. Um, uh, but I did... Um, the, the, in the budget um, material, you do get the split between global programs and country and regional programs, which I think is not a bad proxy for looking at expenditure against these different categories. Last year, as you remember, it was the bilateral and regional programs, well, primarily the bilateral programs that largely are delivered through NGOs and commercial contractors and through partner government systems that bore the brunt of the heavy cuts. And as a result, last year's budget was one of the most multilateral that Australia has ever had. Uh, the proportion of budget spent on global programs last year was up to nearly 34%. Balanced against long-term averages, so on average, Australia normally spends around uh, in the low 20% range for global programs. But last year, we saw that move from 23% three years ago to 34%. There's been some rebalancing of this um, uh, weighting to the global programs and to multilateral expenditure. Um, global programs, as Stephen mentioned, have borne most of the albeit more modest cuts um, this year, while the bilateral programs have largely been maintained in nominal terms. Um, in 2016-17, global programs now make up 29% of the budget, so still well ahead of the long-term average for the proportion of the budget spent on global programs, but down from the 34% last year. So... Um, I had a look at, again, the performance information. So one of the things DFAT now does is look at um, the performance of, of their programs according to the partner that's delivering them. Um, now, this, some of this is relatively new, but what's striking is that the least... This is DFAT's own assessment that the least performing uh, delivery partner are multilateral institutions. Um, and again, I don't. We, we, I haven't been able to get data that matches these definitions, so it's hard to track expenditure against these um, categories of performance. But uh, in the performance report, it is striking to note that, for example, um, uh, there's more than double the expenditure on multilaterals compared to NGOs, even though DFAT is assessing the NGOs as a much higher quality partner than the multilateral organisations. So again, the choice of delivery partner in the connection to performance is, is not obvious at all. So in summary, how does the budget stack up against the stated priorities of the government? Um, the story is mixed, but much more in line with expectations than last year. The Pacific region remains the priority, but as with last year, there are no link between aid allocations and performance, and allocations seem largely driven by national interest. In terms of sectors, we can see that the government's new priorities are protected. Aid for trade, gender, innovation are all protected from the cuts. And what requires more debate and transparency are the relative allocations uh, within and between governance, health and education, and what that really means for the effectiveness and impact of Australia's aid. In terms of delivery partner, we can now see performance data on the different delivery partners, and that indicates that DFAT rate programs delivered by NGOs and commercial contractors more highly than those delivered by multilaterals, 
and we've seen re some rebalancing away from multilaterals back to those other sources. Um, but it's still more multilaterally heavy than it has been in recent years. So to recap, there's no major surprises. I mean, it's a depressing budget because of the cuts, but there are no major surprises in it. Um, but there's a couple of take-home messages for me. So one is we need to better understand and track the, the um, sectoral allocations. Secondly, we need to keep asking when and how we will see some relationship between budget decisions and performance data of countries, partners and sectors. So far, I can see no evidence of any relationship at all, and if anything, we're seeing the opposite, that aid is being allocated in favour or towards the worst performing countries, sectors um, and partners. And I think this is a shame given the emphasis the Minister put on linking aid to performance in her statement of development priorities. And it also begs the question of why DFAT is putting so much effort into measuring the, the performance of, in all these different ways, but they're not using that information in its most important policy tool, which is the budget. Finally, I wanted to finish on a more positive note. You always try and finish on something positive, and uh, I really like the oranges, the new blue. Uh, I wanted to thank DFAT for reinstating much more detail on this year's aid budget through the Orange Book, and I urge you all to have a look at it. Um, they have put a lot more detail in that in it, and I'm really pleased about that. Thanks. I'm going to wait for you. Do you want me to answer questions now or we'll move straight to yeah, question time? Yeah, I think we'll take a couple of quick questions and then we'll convene our panel. And there's lots of questions. Um, so first up here and then... Um I'm Alan Tilbert from Palladium. Thanks very much, Jackie. Um, a very simple question. You've had a long and stellar career in AusAid and then DFAT. Um, the gap between policy rhetoric and practical outcomes. Question is, are you surprised? And if so, uh, why? And if not, why not? Oh. <laughs> Gee, Alan, that's a tough question. Um... Am I surprised? Um, do you know, I mean, I shouldn't be cynical, should I? Like, uh, and, you know, I wasn't elected foreign minister and I'm not the government. Um, we all elected the government and the government have, have its stated policy priorities for the program. I do think there's an obligation for us to track whether or not it's delivering what it said it would do. So, yes, it's cut the program. I wouldn't cut the program, but it said it would and it has. Um, what I find, what I think we need to focus in on is whether the rhetoric around its priorities within the budget are also being matched. Um, you know, I, I, you know I, I do think that a lot of the priorities have been met. I think the one glaring uh, and obvious uh, gap is around performance, the rhetoric around performance and the allocation of aid. And it's not clear to me that it's deliberate, uh, but I do think it's something that everyone should be paying attention to. Um, actually, there's just a question behind you, Jeannie. And it's swapped here. Okay. Uh, this one. Is that on? It is. Okay. Thanks. Hi, thanks for your presentation. My name is Neeman. I'm a listening fellow from India, Canada, EU. Uh, in the face of these budgets, Budget cuts. Just curious to know how Australia's 
aid engagement with South Asia will shape up. Sorry, how our aid engagement with... Uh, with South Asia. Well, it's not shaping up very well. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I really think you're seeing a heavy concentration of aid back to the immediate region, so the Pacific plus Timor, leaving aside the anomaly of um, Cambodia because of border security priorities. So I think that is where DFAT's main priorities and development engagement is. And I think the, it's no coincidence that we've now got a Minister for Development and Pacific Island Affairs. I mean, they go together. It's all, there's almost... There's very little, um, I think, geographic focus or attention to the aid program beyond that immediate neighbourhood. We still have some reasonable-sized programs in East Asia, Southeast Asia, but not many. And I think that our development influence in those countries would have been affected by the significant cuts to aid in those particular places. It's hard to... I've never worked on South Asia, but it would be hard to see how Australia could have much of a voice on development issues given the scale of our programs there. One more from Paul, and then we'll Hi, Jackie. The question, I guess, is the balance as to when we try and communicate some of these messages about the aid budget to the wider community. So we can have a look at a fair amount of detail on some of the allocations, such as the sectors or country versus global, some of those sort of programs. But I guess it's how do we balance that with what seems to be the real issue, which is the level of aid and the overall sort of pattern of cuts. So the reference, for example, in health and education, if you look at the share of the program that goes to those activities, like education stated at 19% and health is stated at 14%, the driver is those 30% cuts that Stephen sort of mentioned. I'm wondering the balance between sort of a, an internal debate about how we fine-tune the program, according to some of those, and mm -hmm. all the strong views on those, of course, relative to the message we get out to the community. We've cut again, we're down to the lowest level, we've sort of reached. How do you balance sort of this, a unified message on that around level versus the more sophisticated debate we also need to have about how those funds are spent? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Paul. I mean, I think they're two different things, as you point out. I think we can analyse the makeup of the budget and try and influence it so it has better impact, and that's largely what my presentation focused on. But we do have a much more fundamental problem, is how do we build community support for higher aid levels? Um, and, I th and I think the Development Policy Centre has been doing some really interesting analysis tracking community attitudes to aid, and they give us some good... Um, insight into where we might need to rebuild support. But we're not going to be able to rebuild support without sustained engagement and debate with the community on why aid matters and what we can achieve with it. I, I really feel like it's a very... Um, the, the debate is very small and very thin, um, and it's hard to resource it to do more in the current environment. We all spend a lot of time talking to each other, but it's very hard to have that conversation or find the time and the space and the mechanisms and the platforms to have that debate with the broader Australian communities like, we, like has happened in the UK, and that has underpinned successive governments having a strong political commitment to development programming irrespective of the fiscal environment. But I think that is something that we all need to do. I just don't have a magic answer for it, but you're right to point it out as a key priority for us. And it's a priority for every single person who cares about the aid program.
So there's a question here and then one Hi, uh, I'm Tim Colbreeze, the uh, Policy Director for UNICEF Australia. Thanks very much for the presentations, they've been fantastic this morning. I just wanted to ask if it's possible um, for either of you guys, uh, Jackie or Stephen, to unpack for us a little bit what's happening in the humanitarian uh, area. I think uh, DFAT staff work at Pains to emphasise the uh, new funding for multi-year funding for Syria, uh, talking about a moderate increase in the, uh, in the emergency fund. But what, what's actually going on underneath that, that decline we can see in the humanitarian sector, if you've got any insight to that, I think I'll take that on notice. <laughs> take a last one on notice. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard, and pointed out, there is actually, although you know, very happy with the orange book, there is actually less detail on humanitarian than there used to be. Um, so, yeah, watch out for Robin's blog tomorrow, and it's also something we'd like to be here. Yeah. Um. Yeah, uh, this is probably to, to Jackie, but everyone could comment on it. You were talking about performance against some of the stated priorities and gender and innovation came up. And I think the innovation one is interesting. Sorry, Debbie, you had Nossal Institute. Um, and how that relates to the sectors that we're investing in, but also how do we actually look at what is the aid program doing in innovation? What does it mean that they're protecting innovation funding? Have you got any sense that they're actually looking at what that means in terms of the aid program, how that relates to sector funding, and also how we look at performance against that objective? I mean, the big, um, the, the, I mean, last night they announced an increase in funding for the innovation exchange in line with what they said they would do. So, to the extent that um, they are delivering on the increase in funding for the innovation exchange and delivering on that pledge for financing, then that's an indication that they're taking innovation seriously. I think the deeper question is how is innovation being driven through the sectoral and regional and multilateral programs? And that's, of course, a really complex um, question to answer, and it's not particularly obvious from the budget information. Um, you do get some glimmers of it in some of the texts, but it, it, we, we just don't have the data or evidence. I, I certainly don't be able to comment on it. Hi, it's David Osborne, Adam Smith International. Um, so, a question for Jackie and, and Steve. Sorry, Tony. Um, <laughs> so, I just wanted to touch on uh, quickly the health and education um, split and the fall in those um, two areas and the, and the stabilisation in governance. Um, when we look at a country level, so, um, and I'll use Papua New Guinea as the example, um, at the uh, for Papua New Guinea, their budget, and um, we're seeing decreases in both health and education. And um, Jackie mentioned that there's a stabilisation in the Pacific, or the Pacific's being protected. Now, at a country level in, in PNG, that's not the case, um, from my understanding. Uh, education through um, the aid program is almost half uh, its funding, and that, from what I understand, is also to protect governance, agriculture, uh, and, and infrastructure, and most likely manners and some um, uh, funding around that issue. Now, uh, Steve, you um, mentioned that the private sector and aid for trade uh, has been protected. 
Now, when you speak with the private sector in Papua New Guinea, they raise the two main constraints to their, their businesses are health and education, and in particular TV and TV. Now, I'd just like to get a little bit of commentary uh, at, a, at a, how this budget relates to our largest partner, the Papua New Guinea, and, and, and maybe Stephen if you're able to do that, and Jackie, in terms of governance, uh, your com company is now controlling the largest governance program. No, it's um, well, 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 I use the word purposely because uh, through, that, through that design, the, um, the idea was that the, the company would, would deliver a lot of technical support around the strategy making. So how governance relates to health and education is going to be really critical for the private sector and economic growth in, this, in these countries, in particular uh, Papua New Guinea. Yes, well, like you said, any discussion on a quickly morphs into a discussion on PNG. Myself included. Yeah, there was, it was interesting to read the text on PNG, and um, I, there was this uh, rhetoric uh, when the, you know, the government, uh, this government came to power and they were going to get out of uh, living textbooks and drugs and build capacity. And, um, you know, because PNG had so much more money. Of course, now PNG sadly is broke. Um, but that, uh, that record is still there. When it comes to health and education, it's exactly that. It's, it's building their capacity. Uh, interesting on roads, though, there's a very explicit statement we're going to uh, help PNG maintain its road, which is very much like that's a sovereign government function, right? What's interesting in maintaining the road and delivering drugs or textbooks? So, yeah, I think there is, uh, there's certainly it's a challenge in PNG uh, to reorient the aid program in the uh, very different fiscal circumstances the country finds itself. And yeah, I was also surprised, we have a background briefing uh, on TB, there's just a, there's a reference to not joking with what is There's no actual reference to the TB. Although I think that is, that is a very serious problem. I mean, there are many serious problems, this is one that could get a lot worse. So yeah, I think that there are, I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm agreeing with you, there is a need probably to, to rethink aid to PNG, um, given those health and education challenges you're talking about, and given the very different, the very different fiscal circumstances to get a couple of years ago. So maybe just a couple of comments for me. Um, I haven't been, I haven't looked into it, but I'm not sure I've got the information at hand, but I'll have a look at the sector allocation within the PNG program. I mean, I'm aware that there's big cuts for health and education, um, even though the overall country envelope hasn't changed very much. My sense is that reprioritisation is going to be like infrastructure rather than governance expenditure. I think the new governance program is more an amalgamation of existing expenditure rather than a scale-up of governance expenditure within PNG. Um, but I need to really look at the data. If you're right to identify uh, you know, the commitment to the private sector doesn't mean you don't focus on health and education. Um, you know, there are clear links between private sector growth and having healthy and productive workforces, and that's always been the case. Um, and in fact, in the, in the federal budget, there's often the link drawn between investments in education and, and productivity. So uh, we do that at the national level for our domestic budget, but we don't do it very often in, in the um, development budget. And I think... Um, I think mean, that's a little bit of trying to justify, you know, they had to cut something to create the space for the programs that they're funding and 
health and education were the ones to go. Um, in terms of the link between governance and health and education, now there is potentially quite big impact that governance programs can have on improving service delivery outcomes. It doesn't all have to be done through a sectoral allocation. But the point is we need greater transparency around where the governance programs are delivering those health and education benefits to the scale or more effectively or more efficiently than investing directly through the sectors. And at the moment, we would have a very hard time being able to look at those, the pieces of those puzzles. And you will, I think, if you're looking at um, health through a governance lens, you're looking much more at systems rather than disease burdens. So something that could be a crisis, an emerging crisis or emergency, like, like the TV epidemic in PNG, cannot be addressed through a governance program. It has to be addressed through specific health interventions. Complex set of issues that you'll, you know, Okay, we have one question here, and then. Yeah. G'day, thanks so much for that. Um, going back to Tony, I, I love you. Uh, <laughs> I, I was just wondering. Um, yesterday, sorry, Nick Stewart from the Canberra Times. Yesterday at the budget, whenever anyone brought up the, these issues about the overall economic macro outlook. Uh, 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 Morrison would just say, oh no, we're investing in growth. And as soon as these investments take, take off, we will be back to 5% uh, GDP growth. Uh, I've got the feeling that you seem to be a little bit more sceptical uh, about that. But bearing in mind the audience here, what, what's this going to mean for programs like the aid budget, which have always been the most vulnerable, most likely to be targeted? this sort of, if, if that growth doesn't keep back income. Yeah, look, um, I think if you look at some of the charts that I've put up, I think there's a reason to be pessimistic. <laughs> Basically, not much has changed in terms of the overall macro context over the last you know, three, four, five years. Um, and I guess what is disappointing is, is that um, the same sort of story is being given to us. Um, it's hard to identify sort of any real new initiatives that is going to, to give us something new, something different. Um, you know, I think really what it points to, and if you look at the long term, a big problem facing the economy is essentially low productivity growth. Um, and that's a deep-rooted problem that's, that's existed for a long time and it's not something that, that will change quickly and, and, you know, you have to give the government some leeway when they say, look, we're investing in these sorts of things, infrastructure or what have you, education, um, but yes, it will take a long time for those to kick in if they do. Um, but I think... It's good to reflect on what has been um, achieved and in terms of, for example, um, sort of productivity reforms, well, in that space, it's been pretty dead for what, the last 15 or more years. Um, and really, uh, that's coming home to roost. Um, so there needs to be more debate about it more generally. And I think it's a good it's a good reminder for people in this room to understand the relationships between what's happening at the, the whole economy level 
and what how that can impact on, on a secondary impact such as the aid sector. So uh, I think it, it is really important, and if, if it doesn't change, well, it's almost inevitable <coughs> that there will be more pressure on annual government spending. And if the aid sector is not able to improve its standing, uh, the squeeze will happen there more so than this. So just to supplement that for a just by the, the sort of economic analysis by the, the politics on it, which has been an election year. I think uh, you know, if the coalition are, are re-elected, well, you know, we've got their four estimates, they've stuck to them this year. I think they've taken their cuts. I mean, I'm not so pessimistic, but I think there'll be another round of cuts. You know, Julie Bishop's back, you know, she's a volunteer and she's one of the eight programs. So we, uh, that's the kind of thing. That, that scenario is uh, no, no growth, no cuts. Um, it's good for you. Thank you very much to the Greens candidate for coming. We know the Greens uh, actually support 0.5, not 0.7 GNI, so they're big supporters for uh, more aid. So the key unknown is uh, Labor and uh, what their position is. And um, you know, they've gone from going to the last election, which is committed to 0.5, to, as I understand it, no commitment at all at the current uh, time. They don't have an aid policy, an aid volume policy. And I think uh, you know, if we wanted to see an upside uh, beyond this uh, current board estimates, then um, the key will be uh, what sort of platform labels, if and whether they come out with a platform on aid volumes. Thanks, Colonel Black. Stephen, my name is Alice Dennett from Results International. I think you just answered my question, but um, perhaps you could elaborate on what kind of scope, if elected, the Labor government has to rebuild our aid program in the medium term. <coughs> well, they have a uh, scope, although it's challenging, as Tony said, it's going to be challenging. And I, yeah, we heard, you know, the first Labor was very vocal um, to the initial, in response to the initial cuts, they've become less and less vocal over time. And, you know, there were hints from uh, the shadow foreign minister when she spoke at our aid conference a couple of years ago that, um, you know, aid left to take its place in the queue. And it seems like it's quite a long queue. And, uh, you know, probably, you know, depends, also later has a fear of being wedged. So even things they might not otherwise put forward, they probably not want to differentiate and so on. Um, yeah, so I think uh, anyone who uh, wants to lobby about aid, I'd, uh, I'd model that approach. podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.